Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Kelly Wolfington. Kelly is a senior wealth strategist at SEI Private Wealth Management. She provides holistic advice in the areas of trust and estate planning, wealth transfer, philanthropy, succession planning, tax planning, and family communication and education strategies for ultra high net worth and high net worth individuals and families. Thanks so much for joining us, Kelly. Thank you. Now, the subject of today's episode is a bit of an offbeat one, Vince McMahon Sr. Vince Sr. was an American professional wrestling promoter. He's uh, best known for founding and running the Capital Wrestling Corporation, later renamed the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and subsequently shortened to the World Wrestling Federation, though today we know it as WWE, and he ran it from 1953 to 1982. The son of a successful Harlem-based boxing and concert promoter named Jess McMahon, Vince Sr. took up the family trade. No, though Jess dabbled in wrestling, Vince Sr. saw great potential in the maligned industry even then to offer cheap and consistent programming for this newfangled invention called television. And he parlayed his father's existing relationship with legendary Madison Square Garden promoter Tex Ricard to give his fledgling company and its array of ethnic stars designed to appeal to a diverse city of immigrants a spot on the grandest possible stage. Now, despite its name, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation was, like all professional wrestling promotions of that era, mostly a regional operation. Uh, For those who aren't aware, for most of its history, American professional wrestling was based on a system of territories. Each territory was basically a family business owned by a certain promoter, and there was a basic handshake agreement amongst them all that they wouldn't infringe on each other's turf, basically. Um, The WWWF was simply the one that came to dominate the most lucrative region being the Northeast. Uh, The wrestlers themselves largely traveled fairly freely amongst the various promotions uh, with the promoters openly exchanging talent. And uh, this actually resulted in wrestling becoming an intensely family-based industry because after all, who can you trust most to stick around for the long haul in an otherwise nomadic profession? Your kids. So it was very common for the family of the promoter to hold starring roles in their respective territories with one notable exception, the Northeast where Vince Sr. believed that a promoter's role was to remain in the background and not be seen. He also strongly believed that wrestlers shouldn't cross over into other media, which should remain in wrestling to protect the legitimacy of the sport, which was, of course, anything. But these beliefs are important because in 1982, Vince Sr. sold the company to his son, Vince Jr., who is the Vince McMahon most folks know today. Uh, Vince Jr. had much grander aspirations than just running a regional wrestling promotion and very different ideas about the sport than his father. In an interview with Sports Illustrated in 1991, he said, had my father known what I was going to do, he never would have sold this stock to me. 
Now, Vince Jr. immediately broke ranks with the other promoters and started promoting and broadcasting shows all over the country behind the strength of his new star attraction, Hulk Hogan, a man initially made famous by his star appearance in, as Thunderlips in Rocky III. Uh, he gradually drove the other promotions out of business and built the then WWF into a juggernaut, scooping up the biggest stars from around the country under one banner. He completed his ascension to dominance at the turn of the 20th century by putting himself on screen as the villainous Mr. McMahon, the main antagonist to Stone Cold Steve Austin. And that gave rise to the most lucrative and culturally relevant period in wrestling history. He turned the, not, the now WWE, after a hilarious lawsuit from the World Wildlife Fund, from the biggest cog in a regional wrestling machine into a multi-billion dollar company that is basically the whole machine. So why have I spent the last five minutes just prattling on about professional wrestling of all things? Like many topics on this show, if you strip away the silliness and the pageantry, there's a relatable core to the story. The next generation having different values than the older one. So I chose this example in particular, as often when we discuss this topic, it's really easy to fall into this idea of failing to pass down certain values, which you know, inherently implies that one generation's beliefs are more valid than that of the other. Uh, in the case of the McMahons, th there's no clear good or bad. Some may look at Vince Sr.'s willingness to work with the other promotions, despite his many advantages, and his views about nepotism and in industry as a whole as somehow noble, while others may look at what Vince Jr. was able to do with those same advantages and just fewer qualms, and say that his way is definitively better. Ultimately, it's never that simple, and the concept of passing on values from one generation to another is thorny ground that any advisor to wealthy families must contend with. So Kelly, what's an advisor's role in helping pass on certain values? And what happens when it becomes clear that the next generation is headed down a different path than the previous? I would say that uh, the advisor's role in tra transferring values really is, uh, it starts with communication. So it's wonderful that families want to pass on wealth uh, to their children, grandchildren, future generations. But if they're not telling their children their story and how they got to where they are, uh, then th that those values do get lost. And it's really important to really have those conversations. Uh, so I can tell you here what we do in terms of family communication is, is trying to dig out the history, trying to dig out the history of the family of the wealth. We have a lot of first generational wealth um, so these family members may, the generation one may have uh, been entrepreneurs or business owners and generated the, the wealth, significant wealth behind them themselves. And they didn't have the same upbringing that their children did. So it's really important to tell stories. We're a big believer in stories because that helped the values transfer, at least in terms of having generational divides understand each other. And when we see... When we see clients, children that may not have the same values, uh, it's not our role to try to explain to them how they should have the same values. More, it's trying to find the common thread. So the generational divide is real. How I was brought up is different than how my parents were brought up and how I'm raising my children. And you can even see a divide within families that have multiple children. My upbringing is different than both of my sisters. So it's, it's again, trying to find where, where, what is the history? What is the story that we're trying to tell? And how do we find what may be similar so that you can actually respect each other? Because that's key. Dynamics, family dynamics are never easy. 
but there should be some underlying respect behind them. Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult balance yes. to try to strike, right? I, I've spoken, you know, with, with other guests I've had on the show. I had, I had Mitzi Purdue, Frank Purdue's uh, wife on the show, and her family literally hands down a bronze <laughs> casting of like what the family is about to the next generation as a gift. Yes. Um, and that works for them. But that's also sort of a very bright line example yeah. of, well, if this doesn't work, you, know, you could see how this could rub somebody the wrong way if they don't happen to have bought in necessarily oh. to, to what this is all about. Most definitely. That, that comes with a, that becomes fraught with emotions and a sense of responsibility. And if you're not ready for it or if you don't want it, that becomes problematic. So it's it, when, you, when you have a family that communicates well, what their goals, what their values, what their objectives are. That's how, that's how you can kind of bypass or help to alleviate uh, the anxiety that comes with significant wealth. Uh, I can't imagine as an 18-year-old getting something like that from, yeah. from my family. Ten uh, commandments, right? Sort of hand yeah. down from on yeah. high. Yes. Yes. All of a sudden, it, it's, you think of it almost as, you know, back in the day, the royalty when kings and queens, kings were made kings at 14 years old. You know, it's, it's just that is a huge burden that you're laying on somebody. So if you start to have those conversations early and often, I feel as though that becomes a lot easier as the time comes. Yeah, I think those conversations also play a great role in sort of reminding everyone that values are more malleable than they seem. Yes. And these things aren't as black and white necessarily. Um, I know, especially in the current political uh, climate, yes. we see that a lot of times people can sort of be cutting their nose off despite their face to sort of not flip-flop or just take a stand because this is what I stand for. It's like, okay, but you know, pushing a little in either direction to make other people happy or to sort of try to understand and relate to others is realistically the way that humanity should kind of work. Um, and in these families, it's oh, the way to no maintain right. this a current, there can still be a thread line of related values that aren't necessarily the exact same company line. Yes, they don't. To your point, there are a lot of grays around values. And while you may have a sticking point on something, you can still find a commonality with somebody that's the complete opposite of you. And I think that we are, I would agree with you in today's current political environment, we are really seeing that where the middle of the road or the, the grays around that are there. You just sometimes have to dig a little bit for it. So, and obviously we're using values here, um, which is, uh, I think, a purposefully nebulous term that can apply to just about anything that a family holds dear. It could be, yes. you know, in, as in the Vince McMahon's example, sort of you know, their opinions about specifically the professional wrestling industry, or, you know, it could be something as what, you know, I think more commonly we'll see it in, you know, what sort of philanthropy or causes that, you know, one generation cares about versus the next. And you can fall into these situations where a lot of time we see this with sort of dead hand control issues also, where, um, you know, the one generation sort of letting perfect be the enemy of good and what they're passing on and trying to get a little too granular um, in exactly what that value is when really sort of the broader strokes are the important part. That's correct. When you when you are talking about multiple generations, you know, certainly whether it's philanthropy or otherwise, philanthropy is just it's an easy way to discuss values, it's an easy way to um, quantify it and help families really have those conversations uh, because you're helping others. What's better than, how else do you feel good than when you help others? 
Uh, so in terms of the, those multiple generations and, uh, and the disparity between them, values, again, it goes back to it is, it is a gray area where one family member might be very religious, the other is very community driven, but maybe not towards a specific religion or specific synagogue or church or whatever it may be. And so it's, it's really important to bridge that gap and uh, find where, why is religion or why is this specific community so important? And usually there is an overarching theme to it that's come down from grandparents, great-grandparents, family friends. And again, once you find that, that common thread, that commonality, then it really does become easier to have the conversations with the family members. So with all this communication that has to happen, it all seems very personal. Where does the advisor really enter this whole program? Because with a lot of these families, this communication, um, though it may eventually become second nature, starting it generally has to be pretty intentional. Yes. Yes. It does have to be intentional. It's, um, it's an, typically it is an iterative process and the way that the, the, the way that advisors can start it is by asking questions whether it's with G1 or G1 and G2, um, but asking questions, uh, delving into some of um, some of the family history, because frankly, people like to talk. So once you start to ask questions, then usually our clients are very open and willing to discuss it. And it's funny because whether it's generation one, generation two, or generation three, they usually are more comfortable discussing it with an outsider than they are with somebody that's in the family. Because again, the different upbringings in the same family or the family members look at it differently. So I found that by asking questions about a history, about a money message, um, that that's where they feel more comfortable. Um, Here at SEI, we do a lot of things that are gamified. So we have a discovery board where we, where we use it to really talk to clients about goals and objectives. And it's in a more interesting and fun way than checking a box about asset allocation and, and general market overview. And it's very similar when we're talking about um, values transfer, that there are a lot of tools out there that advisors are able to use, whether it's an internal tool or an external tool that um, just opens the conversation so it, it could be cards, it, it could be um, an app. There are a lot of things that are out there that, that we have access to. Um, and it, it makes the conversation flow in a freer manner than just asking what are your values and how do you want to pass it down? It's really interesting, this idea of sort of the advisor as a, as a mediator or a double agent, almost sort of flitting between the two yes. parties to try to find this middle ground. Um, and I think in that, it's important for advisors, especially um, those who may be advisors, you know, started as the advisor to the wealth creator, um, to determine, when you know, ask themselves a difficult question, who is my client, right? Because, you know, you can, especially if you came up as sort of dad's advisor, mom's advisor, she's the one who built the company, and everyone else in the family hasn't really met you that much, but they're still dependent on you as their financial advisor, you, you kind of find this right. interesting, you know, as you transfer from a person's advisor to advising now family generational wealth, 
there is that question you have to realize I am the family's advisor. I am not, you know, Mary's advisor necessarily. Oh, definitely. Once, once the children start to get involved, you know, our goal is to be, our goal and our, our job is to be impartial. So it's, it's not, it's fine to explain where a parent might be coming from or where a child might be coming from, but we can't take sides. And so it's really important to make sure that we do look at it in a partial, look at it in an impartial um, colored lens and really make sure that when we're part of those conversations, that it's, it's more of a listening and repeating. So it's, it's not putting our views in there. It's not saying what we think we heard. It's literally saying, this is what we have heard. And this is what G1 says. This is what G2 said. And it's trying to make sure that the family members hear each other as well. well you know, a lot of times we talk about sort of communication. And I mean, anyone who's really listened to this show will, will note that communication is effectively the, the theme of every, every, every single episode. Oh, yes. Um, but, you know, hey, don't tell anybody. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of times we talk about these communications. I think family meetings sort of come up as the general catch-all of like, oh, yeah, these are great. Um, what are your feelings on family meetings and sort of what role should an advisor play in them? Should they just sort of schedule them and then step aside or should there actually be like an active mediating sort of organizing role that, while it's going on? Oh, I think our job is to figure out well, what's, what's mm-hmm. the objective of family meeting. If you want your family to get together, then what, what's the purpose of it? And this goes back to including all of the family members and really saying, okay, here's it, we can come up with a family meeting and to go over investments, to go over the portfolios, to go over what your philanthropic um, activities have been in the last year, five years, 10 years. But is that actually, is that moving the needle for them? Is that helping them in any way? And as, as an advisor, our job is really to figure out what, what are we trying to get out of the meeting and how can we help our clients get to where they're telling us that they want yeah, to Yeah, and I guess be. that gets back to the intentionality of the whole process that needs to be involved, right? I mean, anyone who's ever seen the show Succession yes. has seen like the million family meetings and yes. kind of like, oh, we'll go, to, we'll go to therapy, sure. But they, they, they never actually determine what they're going to therapy for other than that they're awful. Um, right. <laughs> so, right. And then it goes predictably <laughs> as sort of poorly as everything on that show goes. Um, oh, there's there's no doubt. I mean, if you're if you're going into a meeting without one, two, or three objectives, then it's just a free for all. And what good is that? And a lot of times in those free for alls, I think we tend you'll you'll see the family sort of fall back into sort of the respectful roles, right? Where sort of the patriarch yes. will do all the talking, and then the kids will turn back into children. If assuming they're you know, a lot of times when we're talking about kids here, we're talking about forty year olds. Um, yes, but they will turn back into twelve. They'll turn back into twelve year olds. Because because you know mommy is talking, right? And that's a very you know destructive dynamic to have, and that's sort of the opposite of, of what a family meeting should really go like. Definitely, and it's it's really interesting too because as you're as you're talking to clients over the years, you hear them say something, and then when you see them with their children or grandchildren, they're acting in a different way than what they've expressed how they want to be, and so it's it's really trying to take a step back and lead them to the path that they've already told us that they want to be. Well, I guess that's an interesting question, right? I mean, when you see that, 
what do you give more weight as the advisor? Cause you're doing a little bit of deciphering yourself, right? Where like, is the path they want what they told me when nobody was there to hear or is what the way they are with their children now in the moment showing me what they actually want. I mean, that seems like it's a very tough um, distinction to suss out. Oh, it definitely is. And it's, I also feel that it's very situational and it's not something that you ever want to call a client out on in the middle of a family meeting or in the middle of a meeting, but it's something that can be discussed, whether you pull them aside or you talk about it at a later date. And uh, again, when you have that impartiality, that's the important part of it so that they look, we are their advisors. We are, we are saying, this is what we've heard. You've told us this, and this is, this is what transpired. So we can either try to find a different way to get there or, or, or we just have to have another discussion about what really are you trying to accomplish? So I think you know, for many advisors, if they could get it to this point, they're pretty comfortable and sort of trying to navigate the rolling ball. But yes. getting the ball rolling is very difficult for a lot of people. Um, and specifically sort of getting the ball rolling with that next generation who's not the client you're seeing four times a year. Right. Um, so how do we, what are your thoughts on that and how to sort of go about sort of getting over that speed bump of just making any sort of positive contact with the next generation so you're not just some guy in a suit who shows up at dad's funeral? Yes, that's, that is the most important thing as an advisor is that there is, there's a huge shift of money that is coming our way. And to make sure that we have connections with the next generation for a number of reasons, but most importantly, it's for the, it's for the clients and their families. You know, if you feel that you're doing a great job for the parents, and you want to continue to do a great job for their children and grandchildren, well, then you need to, you need to meet them where they are. And, uh, you know, the way that we really started is we, we have educational material that that we talk to our clients' children about. We talk to them about family gifting, about philanthropic gifting. Uh, I have some clients where the parents give a certain amount of money donations, uh, but the children have to have the conversation with me so that the kids are making the decisions, but in a meaningful fashion. So talk about what philanthropy means. What are you supposed to be working for? Um, other children, I have educational meetings so that we can level set. So when we're talking about family meetings, it's also important that everybody understands what's being discussed. So giving everybody the opportunity to be educated so that they feel comfortable when we're in those meetings. And the more that the more face time that you have with the next generation, G1, G2, G3, the more FaceTime that you have with them, the more comfortable they are coming to you with questions. Mm -hmm. And so that they look at you as, as part of their team, as opposed to just their parents' advisor. So, and Kelly, the, thus far, we've sort of been talking about the case, you know, hopefully where, you know, there is some common ground. Um, yes. And that the advisor can make meaningful connections here. And, and, but that's not every case, unfortunately. Um, and so there is a situation where we have two generations that just are going in completely opposite directions. Um, what is the advisor's job and role then? If, when we're talking about children, quote unquote, that are in their 40s, they're adults. Mm -hmm. So the advisor's job is to listen to what their clients are saying. So their clients are not just the parents. They are 
they are also their children or their grandchildren. And so it's, it's going back to, uh, you are my client, just like my, just like your parents are my client. So I, I need to follow what your guidance is. I need to follow what your objectives are. And especially where wealth has already been transferred, uh, that certainly makes it easier, but it's, it, most of our clients that have trust for their children or their grandchildren, they've already laid out what their intentions are. And it's up to the children to say, these are my intentions. These are not my intentions. I want assets for something different. And it's up to them to be honest with us so that we can figure out whether or not we're, what we're looking to do makes sense from the holistic standpoint. Well, that's about all the time we have. I'd like to thank Kelly Wolfington for being just a great guest and for, for tackling what is uh, an enormous and broad topic with me. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. And uh, for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.